Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, author of Eyes on the Right for Substack. Our special guest this week is Nicholas Grossman. He is a professor of political science at the University of Illinois and a senior editor at Arc Digital. Welcome, one and all. We have a lot to get to this week, and we will be touching on a lot of different topics. We have a lightning round at the end, but for now, I'd like to begin with the news that the Justice Department is indeed investigating Donald Trump. That is, the grand jury has heard testimony and people who've testified before the grand jury have been asked about Trump's role. Further, people who were involved in the fake elector scheme have received subpoenas to appear before the grand jury. We have also been informed that The DOJ has seized the phones of John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark. And so it feels as if things are moving. And this is what the Attorney General Merrick Garland said this week on this topic. Quote, the Justice Department has from the beginning been moving urgently to learn everything we can about this period and to bring to justice everybody who was criminally responsible for interfering with the peaceful transfer of power from one administration to another, which is the fundamental element of our democracy, unquote. I'm going to start with you, Nick Grossman. You wrote a blistering and wonderful piece a couple months ago called Indict Them All. And uh, so I'd like to get your response to the latest news and I assume you think this is where we ought to be. Very much so. So I think Garland is right to be cagey, to not be directly open about it. An important part of Justice Department impartiality is that they do not speak about active cases, that even acknowledging it is in part giving into some pressure, but they're not going to give details until they are ready to do it. There's also an element of surprise with things like, say, police raids or warrants, so that they're not going to be open about it. And I think people who politically want Garland to sound like he is some MSNBC commentator are going to be disappointed and that he's right to resist that. But on the broader question of should this be treated as a criminal matter, including all the way up to the former president, I think absolutely yes. And the answer is really straightforward, that if we are a rule of law society, that means that nobody is above the law. And when there are serious crimes, we prosecute them because if we do not prosecute them, we are sending the message that they are effectively legal and that there can encourage more. And since there is quite a bit of evidence that this is a very serious crime, it involved multiple things, including perhaps conspiracy against the United States, that there was really a robust effort for Trump to try to stay in power after losing re-election, even after all of the legal avenues had been exhausted, and that in political science terms and in various well-established criteria before any of this happened, that would classify as a coup or more specifically as uh, an autogolpe or self-coup in which a person who legally got national power then tries to illegally stay in national power even after they are supposed to leave under the law. And so that happened, and we have to face it. And there are many good arguments about why this would be especially difficult or why it might be a hard time for the country to go through. And I think that those are accurate, but that was not the choice of U.S. law enforcement. That was the choice of Donald Trump when he tried to overthrow the government. And if we do not go ahead and go through it, then the alternatives are also very dangerous. And so we can't really know what is going to happen either way. And since we can't really know, I think we should follow the law, enforce the law against serious crimes, and let the chips fall where they may. Thank you for that. Damon, I know that you have a different view, and I will get to you in a minute, but I want to start with Bill Galston. Bill, you've also been a bit skeptical about holding Trump legally responsible. Have your views changed at all? They have changed to some extent. And I'll confess that some of the testimony in recent weeks has moved the center of gravity of my thinking. But the overall framework of my thinking remains the same. And let me put it this way. Justice is backward looking. Politics 
must be forward-looking. If I were to conclude that prosecuting Donald Trump would make it more rather than less likely that he would be re-elected president of the United States, I would oppose prosecution with every fiber of my being. Nick makes a good point. Winston Churchill made a very similar point decades ago that if you don't know what's going to happen, you might as well go ahead and do the right thing. But it's not always clear that we don't know what's going to happen. And I'll be watching the evidence as closely as I can to try to make a determination that I'm comfortable with as to the consequences of prosecuting Trump. And if they're unknowable, or if the consequence were to make it less likely that he would be reelected president of the United States, I'd be all in favor of it. The biggest threat to the rule of law in the United States is the reelection of Donald Trump. By contrast, not prosecuting him and getting rid of him for good would be a small price to pay. Thank you. Linda, does the public's reaction to the January 6th committee hearings suggest that there is less to be feared from a prosecution of Trump than we thought before these hearings? Because before the hearings, a lot of people were of the view that there was absolutely no changing anybody's mind, that things were too hardened, that the pro-Trump people would simply tune it out or claim it was fake news and uh, that the MSNBC audience would be tuning in eagerly and that nobody in the middle would be moved. And that has proven not to be the case. So does that affect your thinking at all? Well, first of all, I've always thought that Donald Trump must be held accountable. How he is held accountable is the real issue. And as I think I've said on this show before, I think the case against him in the state of Georgia may be easier to prosecute. The laws there are more specific than um, some of the laws under which he would be prosecuted federally. And therefore, I think that certainly should go forward. I mean, there is the DA in Fulton County has prosecuted the teachers union, one that I used to work for, actually, in Atlanta under the RICO statute in that state. And I think there's a RICO case to be made on this. I say that obviously as a non-lawyer, but as somebody who follows these issues carefully. So I do want to see him held accountable. I am a little worried about an indictment of Donald Trump himself by the federal government, particularly late in the Biden administration, and how that would play out. And I do believe that his being acquitted, which is not impossible, would have a devastating effect and might be worse than choosing not to prosecute him. And I, I do Linda, think- can I interrupt you really quick mm-hmm. yeah. on that? Yeah. I can envision a jury impaneled in the District of Columbia containing some QAnon wacko who manages mm-hmm. to slip through the net and therefore that person refuses to convict. And then you don't get an acquittal. You get a hung jury. Well, you get a hung jury. You're right. You're right about that. And so I misspoke it. Yeah. But a hung jury would not be great either. Hmm. But, you know, the crimes that they are talking about, the speech at the ellipse, which I think was absolute incitement. But I think he may have defenses on that. I think what it is going to take and what would make me most comfortable, and maybe we're seeing that take place now, is that you have Greg Jacob and you have Mark Short having testified before the grand jury, the federally paneled grand jury in the district. And I expect we're going to see others testifying from within the administration. What it is going to take, in my view, to make this prosecutable and perhaps to be accepted even by some people who voted for Trump, is individuals who will essentially say that Donald Trump, maybe listening to folks like John Eastman, but nonetheless, that Donald Trump was essentially the orchestrator of the scheme to send fake electors, their certificates to the Congress and also to the archivist, and that it was his intention to stop the transfer of power that should legally occur. And, you know, I remain hopeful that they're going to come up with that kind of evidence. And I think it is absolutely certain that we are going to see major indictments. And I think all of the people 
under Donald Trump are going to be vulnerable. And who knows? I mean, John Eastman may decide that he doesn't want to spend months, if not years, behind bars. Mark Meadows, never that much a principal guy, may decide that he doesn't want to. So it may be that we will see a grand jury getting cooperation from somebody beneath Donald Trump who will make it easier to prosecute him. I would love to see him invited. I think I've seen him on the show. I'd like to see him frog-marched, you know, out <laughs> doing the perp walk. I'd love to see him in an orange jumpsuit to match his orange hair. Uh, all of this would make me very pleased. Not necessarily the most uniting thing in this very divided country, but what he did is unconscionable and cannot go unpunished in some way. So, Damon, I'm going to come to you, and I, you're invited to respond to anything and everything that you've just heard, but I want to just tee it up with one more item, which is, to quote Pat Cipollone, based on testimony by Cassidy Hutchinson, which was not challenged by Cipollone when he testified, he went into her office on January 6th and said, if we do this, that is, at the time, I think they were discussing Trump physically going up to the Capitol. But in any event, he said, we are going to be charged with every crime imaginable. Okay. Now, isn't it important that people in high office who have tremendous responsibilities fear that they will be charged with crimes if they commit them? And that if you don't hold people accountable criminally for crimes they commit while in office, you're opening the door to more of it. Well, I'm certainly in favor of charging all kinds of people involved in this mess. I just think it can't include or should not include Donald Trump himself. I want to make a few points along these lines. These are mostly prudential considerations, not moral judgments. I think I've said this on the podcast before. In discussing this, I am not in any way trying to exonerate Trump for his behavior through this period, which I agree with in what everyone has said, that it was uh, inexcusable. And if I were God, I would punish him severely. However, <laughs> we don't operate in a universe that works that way. So I just, again, just a few points. First of all, on the charge itself, I have no objection in principle to a lower court charging Trump with crimes that very much includes in Georgia. If that goes forward, you know, I might be a little concerned about the results, but I, I'm not going to take a big public stand against that. I don't think it raises the same kinds of concerns that animate my objection to the federal level. At the federal level, what crime crime is he going to be charged with? It looks like the one could be seditious conspiracy. I at least do not see yet that we have anything more than a hell of a lot of circumstantial evidence that he committed seditious conspiracy. That might be enough to trip a grand jury and allow an indictment. But, you know, as Linda brought up, the prospect of putting this guy on trial for trying to overthrow the government and then him getting acquitted, uh, I think, is a pretty scary thought. And frankly, like, I I'm not as worried about, like, the one QAnon person who leads to a hung jury. I think that based on the current evidence that it's entirely possible that a jury that's given instructions to follow the usual standard of beyond a reasonable doubt could well acquit him on the basis of what we have heard so far on that charge. Now, I could be wrong. And I don't, that is not the core of my concern about putting him on trial, but it is something I think, you know, we should take seriously that like, well, you know, there could be a reason why Merrick Garland doesn't actually indict him. And that's because they can't pin him down. He has a long history of doing this. He doesn't actually say the illegal thing he wants done. He insinuates, implies, winks, makes gestures with his hands, and the people who work for him know the way his corrupt mind thinks, and then they execute his wishes without him having to explicitly state what he wants, which gives him plausible deniability, which is very well enough to get him off from a jury. So that's another consideration. I guess the other thing I would say is kind of the core of my case about why this is a bad idea. The rule of law is not automatic. People who act as if, but we all saw him do it. It was terrible. We have to punish this. It has to happen. This is the rule of law. The rule of law 
is in some respects a very noble ideal, and it's one we need to adhere to. But the decisions about whether a particular indictment is made is always a partially political decision. Prosecutors make these decisions for all kinds of considerations. And in this case, the idea of taking this man who has proven himself so adept at undermining faith in our institutions by insinuating that every statement of moral high-mindedness actually masks a baser motive. And to have him inject that logic of corrupting leveling of moral standards and legal standards into the very structure of the Justice Department and the federal rule of law, I think could be incredibly corrosive. He could, in effect, be put on trial and in return put the rule of law as such on trial. And how would that play itself out? What if he runs for office while on trial? What if he's convicted and goes to jail and runs for president from jail and treats it as a vindication of himself against the entire system that has put him there? Dictatorships don't just arise in a kind of straightforward way where the bad guy, the would-be tyrant, simply raises a group of supporters and takes the White House or whatever the seat of power is and, and installs himself. It can happen that way, but it can also happen dialectically where the people in charge of the rule of law take a stand and try to prosecute someone like Trump. And Trump uses that as a way to indict the entire system and raise tens of millions of supporters in the country against that system in his defense. And in that scenario, Donald Trump becomes an outlaw folk hero, the likes of which the world has never seen. So, I mean, I know this sounds maybe a little outlandish and like a dystopian fiction that I've talked myself into, but I have a lot of memories of living through those four years of Donald Trump, and we never lived through anything like the circus that we would be seeing if we try to actually throw him in jail for his actions and the kind of demagogic mess that he could make of our democracy by doing it. That's my concern. Thank you. Very well stated, as I expected. Nick Grossman, I'm going to come to you in just a second, but Bill Galston, did you want to make a comment first? Yes, I do. In my judgment, the January 6th Commission has already made an absolutely compelling case for impeaching Donald Trump and then voting to remove him from office. <laughs> and if only that were the issue on the table, this would be a no-brainer. I completely agree with that, I should add. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Nick Grossman, how do you respond to Damon's points? So I think that it is missing two important things. And a lot of this does depend on how much you rate the moment. So one is that argument about guessing what might help Trump's reelection opportunity seems like an argument for normal times. And the assumption that if Trump is tried and either if he ends up being acquitted or if there's a hung jury or just the trial is ongoing, that this will result in bad things, that this will hurt the country, either, you know, perhaps cast him as a folk hero, allow him to put rule of law on trial. I don't know why that wouldn't happen if he is placed above the law in advance. So if we say that the a former president can do these things and escape prosecution, then we don't have rule of law, or at least we don't have rule of law for powerful people. So I think shying from the test in the first place, not even putting us to the question, is giving up in advance. It is throwing it away. It's forfeiting it. And with possible other uh, problems, one, Bill mentioned that justice is backward-looking, uh, not forward-looking, and that's only partially true. One of the reasons for justice, for criminal justice, is deterrence of the future. We prosecute murderers not only to uh, put a murderer in jail and to keep them off the streets and punish them for their actions, but also to send a signal to everybody that murder is wrong and you will face large consequences, so don't do it. And it would be important for the United States to put down a marker and say, violating election laws in this manner 
is something that you cannot do. There will be big consequences. You should be afraid of even trying to do it. With the specific charge that Damon brought up, a seditious conspiracy is what various Oath Keepers have been convicted of. That charge requires violence explicitly, has to use violence to in some way prevent the execution of U.S. law. Conspiracy to defraud the United States, however, requires using lies or false information, false documents to try to prevent the United States from executing its law. And things like John Eastman writing a memo outlining the plan to use Pence to try to reject electoral votes. And then even after the riot had finished, then the National Guard had regained control of the Capitol. Eastman emailed some legislatures saying, now that the Electoral Count Act was violated a little, couldn't you just violate it a little more? So he actually put in writing that he was trying to use the riot as leverage and put in writing that it was a violation of law, that he knew it. So if we agree generally that people like that are doing something that looks a whole lot like conspiracy to defraud the United States, then the question of should Trump be charged? And everybody here is saying that, yes, he probably did it, but maybe there are these other political considerations. And I don't think we can be remotely confident in those. And also they're really discounting the downside of not doing anything. So of encouraging them. So will Trump claim that he's above the law or that, you know, he was able to defeat everybody if he wins a court case? Yes. And will he claim exactly the same thing and he's being persecuted if he's not tried? And look, they didn't even charge me. That's how you know that they were always full of it, that, you know, these were always kind of made up charges. They wouldn't even bring them in court, made up accusations. So he's going to do it either way. And in a similar sense, various things that Republicans are threatening, that they're going to do a bunch of bad faith investigations in Congress. Well, they're already promising to do that anyway. Or, you know, with uh, Hunter Biden hearings or whatever. They're going to do that regardless. And some others I've heard of, oh, there might be violence. Some people, Trump supporters, some might get angry and get violent. And if that is the case, then it is a matter for counterterrorism and law enforcement. It's not a reason for the United States to choose against executing its law because of violence. So even though I think that politics shouldn't be the big question, that, that law really should be the big one, I'll even just make an argument of, I don't know if it would help him, maybe it would. It also could create, if you want a political scenario, strikes me as plausible, it could finally create an opportunity for a Republican challenger to really take on Trump, that they would have the argument of, well, sir, we thought you did a really great job in office, but uh, you went too far at the last moment, and not only did you lose the election, but now you're under indictment. We need somebody leading the party who is not under indictment and dealing with legal issues and will be able to carry on the Trump agenda of yada yada. And I don't know if that's the case, that that'll definitely happen. But I don't think that that is much less plausible than Trump being put on trial and this helping him get a whole bunch of new support in some manner or another. And so that strikes me as pundit guesswork, that placing something that you can't really know as a, it is plausible, but putting too much credence on one's ability to predict that, that other things are plausible. And since we don't know, I still come back to, they committed really big crimes. We don't want people to commit those crimes in the future. So we charge them. Thank you. We're going to leave it there for this week and move on to other topics. We are now looking at the November election coming up fairly soon. It's almost August. Not much time left. But when you look at the generic ballot, it is surprisingly close. You know, the question they always ask is, you know, who do you want to see in control of Congress, Democrats or Republicans? They are within a fraction of a point of one another. And so, Linda, I'm going to start with you on this. I'm curious whether you think that part of the reason we're seeing this narrowing is that the GOP has put up some really crazy and extremist candidates. Well, they clearly have. I mean, you've got not just election deniers, but you've got absolute fabulous like uh, Herschel Walker running. And uh, this is really a problem for the GOP. I mean, this is what happened when a normal traditional party in the United States gets taken over by the fringes. And we're seeing it throughout the country. We're seeing it in gubernatorial races uh, here in the state of Maryland, where I live. You're seeing the most radical uh, nominee nominated uh, to replace Larry Hogan as governor of the state. Now, I do think that Democrats' prospects look better than they should based on the state of the economy, based on the unpopularity of President Biden. 
And it is possible that Republicans have been too clever by half by coming up with these crazy candidates. And I think if the Democrats are wise and they start running a campaign based on the extreme nature of the candidates in various state races, that they may be able to reach moderate folks uh, within the Republican Party, the few of them that remain, but most importantly, they'll be able to reach independents. And so I think we're looking very, very grim for Democrats in the fall. They may be slightly less grim now, but it's very difficult to predict. I mean, it's August already, uh, and November seems very, very close, but in political terms, it's still a long way away, and it's going to we're going to wait and see what happens to candidates like Mr. Brighton's in Missouri, to Herschel Walker in Georgia, and some of the others, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. I mean, there are a lot of candidates out there that are so crazy, so extreme, and such a turnoff to voters that it may not end up being quite as bad. Now, some of these are state races, and obviously others are congressional races, But that polling data should give some encouragement. I just hope that Democrats don't take it to the bank. And the big problem for Democrats is always turnout in a non-presidential year. And Black voters, who are a huge portion of the Democratic base, tend not to vote in off years. And so, you know, let's see what happens and whether Democrats are going to be able to turn out the proper vote. Right. Okay. Damon, I'm, uh, so you know the old line about you should dance like nobody's watching and run like you're 10 points behind. So good advice for the Democrats, maybe. But I can remember back in, I think it was 2010, when it was supposed to be a good year for Republicans. But nevertheless, there were a couple of really nutty candidates who, uh, like Sharon Engel in uh, Nevada and the witch woman whose name I forget in Delaware. And so the the Republicans lost two winnable uh, Senate seats that year. Okay. But this year you cannot even begin to count the nutty and dangerous and just completely inappropriate people who are on the ballot. There's Eric Greitens, Herschel Walker, Max Miller, Doug Mastriano, Mehmet Oz, Blake Masters, Adam Laxall, and the list goes on. That's not a comprehensive list. Right. Uh, that's for sure. I mean, certainly <laughs> I, certainly at the Senate level, these could really blow up in the Republican faces. The House level, you know, I tend to sort of write off the behavior of a lot of these voters who are facing these people, because often these candidates end up running because that's what Republicans in that part of the country really want to hear. That's how you get Marjorie Taylor Greene in the House. So, you know, could I see there being a, a, a wave of Republican victories in the House and they easily take the chamber and a lot of the new people are kind of uh, Tea Party 2.0 total like loony bin stuff. I mean, I could totally see that happening. At the Senate level, that's where I really kind of sit back and wondering like, what the heck is going on here? I mean, someone like Herschel Walker, you know, this is Mitch McConnell went along with this, I think probably just to placate Trump. But this guy, uh, he seems like he needs help just in general getting through the day, let alone serving as a senator. He has a habit of getting up and kind of just speaking what sounds almost like kind of non sequiturs. And so that's bizarre. Wait, can I interrupt you? Uh, just, yeah, there's a few more things to say about Mr. Walker. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Three children that he has not acknowledged until now and his staff didn't even know about. He told an audience recently that he had been an FBI agent. He also recounted a tale of getting into his car with a gun with the intention of chasing down another man and killing him. And that he only didn't do it when he got out of his car armed and saw that the guy had a bumper sticker saying Jesus saves. 
So oh, very inspiring. Who among us has not? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah well, yeah. yeah. I mean, so there's that case. And then in my own home state of Pennsylvania, you have, uh, you know, the Oz campaign where Fetterman, the Democrat who's running against him, had a stroke and it still has not fully come out on the campaign trail. And his entire campaign is amounting to kind of trolling little videos mocking the fact that Oz not only doesn't really live in Pennsylvania, but he like has a mansion in New Jersey and maybe yet another mansion that no one knows about in New Jersey. It's kind of like almost joke level stuff that that mm-hmm. a party that was well run would have like vetted this long, long ago. You know, carpet bagging is as old as the Republic, but usually the person who's doing the carpet bagging is doing it because they really want to serve in Congress, be a senator be in high office. And yet it's not even clear why Oz would want to be in politics. It's a really bizarre thing. And we could just go down the line. You also, I don't think mentioned uh, the master's campaign in Arizona Mm -hmm. up against Mm -hmm. Mark Kelly, who was very vulnerable going into this. And master's is like a sock puppet for Peter Thiel, who's a, a very extreme and bizarre billionaire who's giving millions of dollars to him and to J.D. Vance in Ohio. So you just go down the line and you realize, wow, the Republicans really put up a lot of bozos for these Senate races. And it's hard in Senate races. It's one thing in a House district where it's overwhelmingly Republican. In a state, you need to win moderate voters, swing voters, maybe some in a year where it's a big wave election and gas prices are high and people are grumpy. You might get some Democrats voting for that Republican, but not if it's Masters or Oz or Herschel Walker, God forbid. Okay. So, uh, Nick Grossman, do you think this is much of a problem for Republicans as we do? Quite possibly, yes. So there's a big advantage for the out party, a thermostatic swing, where they are usually do well in midterms of the other party from the president's, you know, people who don't like the president want to come out and say so, whereas people who do are usually kind of complicit about it. And there are also things working against Democrats, like the economy is not good and voters usually blame whoever is in power, no matter whose fault it is. And President Biden's ratings are quite low, and that usually is not good for his party in the midterms. I also think that one people didn't mention is that both these times are strange. I think people have a sense of, you know, the Trump thing and COVID and other questions that weren't there before. And also the big change in Supreme Court rulings with abortion laws may motivate some voters who would have sat out midterms otherwise. But if I had to predict today, I'd say Republicans get the House and Democrats hold on to the Senate because of the candidates that are are being nominated. And in 2010, um, as you noted, it was a big Republican wave. And not only was there uh, the Christine O'Donnell, uh, not a witch of Delaware. Ah, There you go. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, there's also uh, Todd Akin, uh, a charmer from Missouri, who uh, said that women can't get pregnant unless it is legitimate rape. So you can't be impregnated <laughs> by rape unless it was legitimate. I don't know what that means. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he lost. And uh, since then, so that was to Claire McCaskill. And then she uh, couldn't get reelected in Missouri. So that one was also somewhat of a fluke. And it seems like there are enough of these. The one that I know rubbed me personally the wrong way the most was uh, Greitens, who put out a ad of him carrying a rifle and other people going, what he said was rhino hunting, and it shows pictures of paramilitary raids. And as someone who studies and teaches about political violence, those are the sort of things that nobody would have seen, that did not see in the United States before, and that if someone did anything like it, you would have seen condemnation from their own party. And Republicans largely shrugged at it or kind of apologized for it, or, you know, anti-anti or let's move on. And making people more comfortable with political violence as a way of talking about it doesn't always lead to political violence. But when violence does happen, that's usually a prelude. And so I found that one especially concerning. The other part, though, that makes me a little worried about this is I don't know if being crazy is necessarily a liability, especially among the Republican electorate anymore. So there is a possibility that some of these candidates, and maybe Oz by the whole carpetbagger thing and just kind of sort of being a stiff, maybe he can't overcome it, but that the ones that a lot of maybe moderate centrists, the broad political middle, look at and say, wow, that person's crazy. Well, there are some Americans, we saw this from both Trump elections, there are some Americans who really want that and won't turn out unless they get it, that they will stay home from something like the Georgia special Senate election but maybe would turn out for somebody like, say, Herschel Walker. And I don't know that's the case, but 
it is at least enough of a live possibility that I think we'll have to see if that sort of incompetence, especially as in the case of Walker, if that is actually a liability in U.S. elections, at least in some of them with the Trumpist base anymore. Yeah, I just want to emphasize your point about Eric Greitens. I couldn't agree more about that, uh, the dangerousness of that kind of messaging and letting it go and saying it's normal. So Bill Galston, um, into this picture, though, of crazy Republican candidates who may be losing altitude because of that, there is a sort of a bad story going the other way. And it's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. But um, Ron Johnson, the current senator in Wisconsin, is up for re-election. He's very vulnerable, Wisconsin being a swing state. But it doesn't look good because the Democrats are dropping out and all endorsing Mandela Barnes to be his opponent. And Barnes is in the past, he's been for abolishing ICE and defund the police and all of that. He's pretty far left guy. So that looks like a winnable one that Democrats are blowing. I don't know whether they're blowing it, but they're certainly not making life any easier for themselves. But let me throw some good news from polling into this swirling pot. Talking about Greitens and violence, it looks to me as though domestic violence is going to do Greitens in. As you probably know, his opponents have been running ads against him, publicizing the multiple instances of domestic violence in which he's been involved. And as a result, he is falling far behind several of the other candidates. One survey showed him behind by 19 points. And that, I think, is encouraging. People may want crazy to some extent, but they don't want wife beaters. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, And child beaters, too. And child beaters. And in the case of Georgia, recent surveys have shown Warnock gaining a very substantial advantage over Herschel Walker in a state that in recent elections has been wafer thin in either direction. So I do think, and here I'm entirely with Damon, I do think that in the case of the Senate, the quality of the candidates matters a great deal. Not so for the House, and there I'm more of a pessimist, and I say that because if you look at the average of the so-called generic vote for members of the House, Republicans still have about a two-point edge. And the conventional political science position is that because Democrats' votes are distributed less efficiently, they need to get about 52% of the votes cast for the House of Representatives to break even. So they're at, by these standards, a four-point disadvantage, which is plenty to translate into significant Republican gains. Now, what do I mean by significant Republican gains? There are many fewer seats that are really vulnerable one way or the other in this election. It's now fewer than 10% of House seats that are even competitive by generous standards. And so if Republicans were to pick up 25 seats in the forthcoming midterms, That would be the political equivalent of picking up 50 seats back when I was in the Clinton administration and we managed to lose 53 seats in the first midterm. So I guess I'm with Nate Silver and the conventional wisdom from 538 that the Democrats have a 50-50 chance of holding the Senate, but a much smaller chance of holding the House on the order of 15 to 20 percent. I would also say that in the past, once again, a generalization from political science, the president's job approval rating has been the single most accurate leading indicator. Speaking as a Democrat, I hope that 2022 is going to be an exception to that because if it isn't, the results aren't going to be pretty. Okay, thank you. With that, we will move on with a lightning round. So let us begin with the economy. There was big news on the economy this week. That is the second straight quarter of economic contraction, which is the traditional definition of a recession. 
and we had the Fed raising the interest rate by three quarters of a point. Damon, are we in a recession? And uh, if so, is that possibly good news because we do need to fight inflation? Well, uh, (laughs) anything from the right angle, I guess, can be good news. (laughs) I mean, I would say my overall take on the economy at this moment is it's pretty mixed. So, Yes, it is overall good if the economy is slowing down in order to take the flame down under the overheating that's leading to inflation, the, the over overabundance of demand in the economy. So that overall is good. On the other hand, and this is in, in some ways like on the same hand, so far at least if the numbers hold, and they do often get revised, mm-hmm. It's down 0.2% for the second quarter, 04 for the first. That's not that deep, but by the technical definition, it still would constitute a recession if those numbers hold in the future. But it isn't that deep, and unemployment is very, very low still. Now, unemployment is a later indicator of recessions. You wouldn't expect to see that surging until we'd been in one for a while, but at 3.6%, it has a long way to go up before it becomes very badly painful. So on the whole, again, I would say mixed. Added into that mixed prognosis is gas prices, which are definitely softening now. Now, that doesn't mean that our inflation numbers are going to go down at least right away. Uh, There are a lot of other things that are in the mix for the calculation of the consumer price index. But the element in the market that hits people most dramatically, and I think with the greatest political impact, is gas prices. And that certainly, I think, has been true these last, say, six or so months as we've gone to the gas pump and seen, you know, $70, $80, $90 facing us there. So you combine uh, gas prices softening a bit a recession seems to be uh, either here or almost here, but not that deep. Unemployment has not really gone up yet at all as a result. And I guess from the very mixed economic situation that has faced the Biden administration for, say, the last nine to 12 months, that counts as good news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very optimistic for Damon Linker. It I is, it is. And of course, <laughs> remember that uh, Reagan was not doing very well at this point in his first term. Uh, uh, he was well. he was very much in the midst of a much, much worse recession than we are facing, at least yet. And oh, yeah. there was plenty of time before his reelection campaign for him to come surging back to win 49 states. Now, that's probably not going to be Joe Biden's scenario, but it does show you really just how early we are in the Biden presidency. So, you know, all all things considered could be worse. Yeah. So Bill Galston, speaking of inflation and of President Biden, so this was not a bad week for President Biden. He got over COVID in sort of record times. I say that as somebody who had COVID and was sick a lot longer, I think, though I didn't have Paxlovid. So he's gotten over the disease and No sooner had the Congress passed the CHIPS Act, which I know you were hoping they would do, but there was the announcement, surprise announcement, of an agreement with Joe Manchin for the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So what's your sense about this breakthrough? Well, clearly that's a better title for the bill these days than Build Back Better. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) It is certainly a surprise, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say a well-kept secret. You know, as Washington insiders will remember, Mitch McConnell was threatening to hold up Republican support for the CHIPS bill because of the prospect that there would be a resuscitation of Build Back Better that can be passed under the so-called reconciliation process with no Republican support. And he must have believed that he had achieved that objective, that is, of scaring Democrats off. When he freed 17 Republicans, including, I believe, himself, 
to vote in favor of the CHIPS bill that was much more than the minimum bill that had been on the table just two weeks previously. And then no sooner had that vote occurred than Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced a deal that was certainly in the works for quite a while and may actually have been sealed well before the vote on the CHIPS Plus bill. So bottom line is McConnell got McConnell. <laughs> you know, the dark prince of hardball politics uh, was out hardballed. And uh, I confess that the partisan bone in my body. Oh, just uh, one, Bill? <laughs> just, just, just one. You know, if you think I'm partisan, you ought to meet every other member of my party. <laughs> uh, I confess, you know, that partisan bone was thrilled. Now, we shall see whether enough Democrats are going to support the CHIPS Plus bill to avoid an unpleasant denouement to this little morality tale. But on the assumption that Nancy Pelosi knows how to count votes and whip votes, I suspect the CHIPS Plus bill will pass, in which case this is certainly better news for Joe Biden than he had any right to expect a couple of weeks ago. Having said that, my experience in these matters tells me that voters are much less impressed by legislation passed, by the legislative scorecard, than by the reality on the ground that they can see and feel for themselves. And these legislative accomplishments will have no impact on their direct experience between now and November. So in that respect, I don't think the picture has changed all that much. Right. Not between now and November, but very possibly between now and 2024. Well, yes. If and this that's... bill's promise is fulfilled, then prescription drug prices will be lower and you will see other kinds of relief for taxpayers, tax credits of various kinds. Although some of the tax credits, I have to say, Bill, you know, I just shrug. Look, I want the Democrats to be successful. I do, because I think the Republicans cannot be trusted with power right now. And so I want to see them be, but at the same time, my old partisanship is rising up when I look at what's in these kinds of things that are in the bill, more tax credits that will benefit Elon Musk. I mean, really, you know, tax credits for the purchase of electric vehicles when frankly, until we have the power sources to create that electricity, providing tax credits for the purchase of electric vehicles doesn't seem to me to be doing much for the environment. But anyway, that's me. All right, we will move on. Linda, so the world has changed a lot since, what was it, 2004, when we had the Defense of Marriage Act, which was considered to be something that made Democrats 1996, Mona. 1996. Oh, my gosh. 1996. Thank you. Thank Bill you. Bill Clinton um, signed it. <laughs> that's right. And now we have the Democrats bringing up a Defense of Marriage. Well, it's not called that, but it's got another Respect name, for Marriage Act. Respect for Marriage. Thank you. Which will sort of codify that same-sex marriage is kosher. And you've got significant numbers of Republicans saying they're not for it. So what do you make of this? Is it going to hurt them? No, I don't think it's going to hurt them. The Respect for Marriage Act did pass the House of Representatives, and Chuck Schumer would like to bring it up in the U.S. Senate. He's going to need 10 Republicans, I think, in order to do that. And there are a number of Republicans, including Susan Collins, who's a co-sponsor of the bill in the Senate, who are going to vote for it. The bigger problem is whether it's actually going to make it to the floor for a vote. And Mitch McConnell is playing sort of, you know, coy on this one. He doesn't really want to say where he stands on it until the bill is actually up. There have been some senators like Ron Johnson who signaled that he didn't think he was going to object to it. And then he started getting flooded with emails and et cetera from the religious right. And so now he's sort of backtracking on that. But there's also a problem in terms of when and if this is going to be able to be voted on. Schumer originally wanted, I think, to pass this quickly and to do it before the Senate goes out in recess at the end of the week. But COVID has intervened, and there are a number of Democratic votes where the senators have COVID in there or may not be able to vote. And so it's all up in the air. But I will say that there has been a sea change since 1996. I think Bill Clinton said he reluctantly signed the bill. 
But the mood of the country in 1996 on the issue of gay marriage is very, very different than it is today. About 70% of the American public supports the idea of gay marriage. And the reason this is even an issue now is that Clarence Thomas, in the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, signaled that the kind of rationale that was employed in Roy v. Wade also undergirded a number of other decisions, including Griswold, which gave married couples the right to access contraception, and also Lawrence v. Texas, which struck down state sodomy laws, but also Obergefell, which was the decision that basically said that states that enacted laws that allowed gay people to marry each other had to be honored by other states. And so what this legislation would do would be, basically, it isn't that it's making a right of access for everyone who is gay to necessarily be married, but it would protect those states that have enacted gay marriage laws, and I think that's most of the states now, that when someone moved from one of those states to one where there was not that legal support for marriage among gay people, that they would have to honor the laws from the other states. And I think it's a good thing you know, I was not always enthusiastic about this subject, but like many Americans and many conservatives, getting to know people who are involved in same-sex relationships and who want to see those same-sex relationships validated and receive the same protection as married couples have has helped change my mind. Linda, I agree with you that the country has changed dramatically. And I will say that even among religious Christians, you find that among certainly among young religious Christians, acceptance of same-sex marriage is very high. And I suspect that these Republican politicians may be hearing from some of the loudest voices in their constituency, but it may not actually be reflective of where their voters are, and they may be misled. can't say for sure. By the way, I actually think Obergefell did say it was a right and it was, it was well, that's that the right. Constitution did, you're right. guaranteed, right. Yeah, guaranteed the right to same-sex marriage. So yeah, it was more than just the states had to honor one another. Yeah. yeah, but this would protect both. And by the way, I do think it's important not to overstep either. I don't think you want to force religious institutions to violate their religious principles Catholic Church does not support gay marriage. And mm-hmm. I don't think that anything that pushes religions to change their views uh, on religion, uh, on their you know, sincerely held religious views, should pertain. But we're talking about civil actions, whether the right. state. And, and so that, that's when I say I support it. That's what I'm supporting. Yes, understood. Okay, Nick, um, on the international front uh, this week, there was a story that the Biden administration has offered a deal, a proposed trade to get Brittany Griner, the WNBA player who has been held in Moscow now for several months on a trumped up charge about marijuana. She did have marijuana with her, but still, you know, they could have let it go, but uh, they didn't. And Paul Whelan, who they've also been holding for quite a long time. So the administration said, yeah, we're in discussions to trade those two for Victor Bout or Boot, I don't know how you pronounce that, B-O-U-T, who's an arms dealer that we've been holding for more than a decade. Russian arms dealer, obviously. So this story seemed to me, at first I was very excited and I thought, oh, good, finally, they're going to do something, get those people out of there. But then I thought, that's weird. Why would they announce it when it's not a done deal? What's going on here? I also thought it was an odd report because Prisoner exchange is not usually something that the negotiations are conducted in the public or conducted through the media. It's, you know, more typically, not always, but more typically something where they work it out and then they announce it and announce it to cheers. Yeah. So I at first saw people getting excited about that. And then it started looking to me more when I thought about it as a sort of domestic politics way of the people in the Biden administration or in the State Department, especially taking a lot of criticism from some of their core supporters of saying, you know, why aren't you trying to do anything about this? And this was their way of saying, no, look, we're trying that 
Until it actually happens, I wouldn't celebrate. And part of the reason why is because, so Griner did, it was cannabis oil that they found as she crossed the border and that is criminal in Russia. And they're really throwing the book at her and, you know, making it a bigger crime or, you know, absolute maximum sentence. And that is pretty obviously political. They don't have many cards to play against the United States. Here was a high profile American that they could capture Mm -hmm. and hold and try to get something. Uh, the arms dealer is really bad uh, in that the U.S. caught him uh, trying to make a deal of, I think, worth about $10 million with FARC of Colombia, who was on the U.S. designated list of terrorist groups at the time, of selling them things like anti-aircraft weapons and plastic explosives and guns and ammunition and a lot of other stuff. He was also part of, or at least connected to, Russian intelligence and has been interrogated in various ways by U.S. intelligence. And Russia, the GRU, and, uh, would probably love to debrief him on all of that. And because Russia has a card that they like having, and because the United States also is engaged in such a high-stakes standoff with Russia over the war in Ukraine, I would not be especially optimistic about it, that both Russia likes having that card, and for the U.S., it's quite a high price to pay for someone who... and. This is, you know, harsh for anyone who would love these individuals, but at this high level of international relations, there is no national strategic value in it. It's a good thing on its own right to be able to get them back, but the U.S. and any of the U.S.'s efforts against Russia wouldn't gain from that, whereas Russia would gain from getting this arms dealer back. Okay, thank you. And with that, we will now turn to our highlights and lowlights of the week. Okay, Damon Linker, I'm going to start with you. Well, very much a low light for me this week. My uh, my low light is a speech that Hungarian President Viktor Orban gave in Romania uh, about a week ago. I was over the previous weekend. It was a long, rambling speech of almost an hour and ten minutes, and it talked about various random topics. But its main thought was that. Europe is dying. It's confronting all kinds of demographic problems that are leading it to be under threat of survival. And foolishly, it is responding by inviting in lots of Muslims who are foreigners and are actually members of, as he put it, other races. And he went on to talk about how it is suicidal for the European continent to attempt to be mixed race. He made clear that he thought that the so-called races could mix internally within Europe, but that if you let in people from outside and let them mix in, that would be uh, the end of European thriving and continuing to exist and even persist throughout history. And along the way, uh, he made a point of name-checking Jean Raspail's notorious racist and xenophobic 1973 novel, The Camp of the Saints, which, if you've ever been unfortunate enough to read the book, is a truly uh, disgusting pornographic depiction of uh, an armada of a million Muslims coming to Europe, invading, and Europe just gives up and surrenders to the Muslim hordes, and it's the end of Europe as we know it. And this is something that the president of Hungary simply gestures toward it and calls it outstanding and encourages everybody to read it. You know, this would be one thing if this were just some random bad actor in the world. We've heard worse throughout history. But of course, this is also a man who has been invited to share a stage with former President Donald Trump, Senator Ted Cruz, and many other major Republicans at a CPAC rally next week in Dallas. And of course, CPAC, which seems to hold a lot of conferences, they obviously have a lot of money. They held a conference in uh, Budapest, Hungary, back in May, where Orban spoke as well. So Orban has become the kind of foreign ideal for a lot of more right-wing populist Republicans. And just before his visit to the United States, he floats this new spin on where he's coming from, and it is an outrightly racist and xenophobic performance. And so I am myself not only disgusted by the speech itself and by those who are trying to defend it here, but also quite concerned about what he might say from that stage next to Donald Trump, giving him perhaps some ideas for things he might advocate in his own attempt to run for re-election in 2024. So very much a low light for me today. Yep. 
By the way, of course, we all remember that Tucker Carlson took his TV show to Budapest just recently and broadcast there for a week all about how great Hungary was. Yes. Excellent um, propaganda from Tucker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Nicholas Grossman. Uh, so first, I'll just strongly second Damon's argument. I also found that very concerning, especially with uh, from political science perspective, that Orban's Hungary is the quintessential case of democratic backsliding, of which a someone gains power legally and uses that power to put their thumb on the scale and to erode the freeness and fairness of elections. And that is something that I don't think it's subtle why a lot of the uh, or portions of the American right are admiring him. And given that he also uses state power for things like culture war, like say, uh, you know, anti-gay, for example. For uh, me, I'll stick to Europe in that mine is either a highlight or a low light, depending on how it goes. And that is Ukraine's pending offensive in the south of the country, that they are attempting a counteroffensive, it looks like, to retake the city of Kherson, which is the biggest population center Russia has managed to capture. And the reason why I'm watching this one so closely is because War, to some extent, is a bargaining process that we know in this case, both sides have incompatible goals. They can't agree, but they also don't know what they can force the other one to agree to. And Ukraine has already forced Russia to drop its goal of regime change. And what this is going to test right now is if these long range rocket systems that uh, NATO countries have been giving to uh, Ukraine, like the HIMARS, which you may have heard of, that those have been attacking Russian logistics and creating this window for this counteroffensive. So we're going to see if those rockets really did make a difference. And also, on the other hand, we'll see if Russia can hold whatever it takes, because if Russia does manage to hold, then Ukraine might have to start having serious thoughts about making a negotiation because they won't be able to take back some of the territory they lost. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians manage to make some gains, take back some territory from Russia, and I think it's definitely possible, not guaranteed, of course, but possible, that will put them in a much stronger position to either continue their offensive or to be able to get some pretty good terms from Russia in some sort of settlement negotiation. So in many ways, the question of the future of the war is going to spin on this battle that will take place probably over the next few weeks. Okay, thank you for that. Linda Chavez. Well, I'm going to turn very personal this week as I have a low light, but it's also a bit of a highlight. Uh, I wasn't on the show last week, as our regular listeners will know, and I wasn't there because I was traveling and I was on my way to speak at the Free Iran World Summit 2022 in Tirana, Albania. Well, when I got there, I learned that that summit had been canceled, and it was canceled because the U.S. Embassy in Tirana, as well as the Albanian government, had notified the organizers, the National Council of Resistance of Iran, that there was a credible threat of terrorism. And it was not an idle threat. In 2018, which is the last time I spoke to the Free Iran World Summit, that time it was in Paris, there was an actual attempt at placing a bomb at the summit. The perpetrators were caught. They were prosecuted. One of them was sentenced to 20 years by a Belgian court. Now the Belgians have signed a treaty to decide to release that man, Asadallah Assadi, to Iran to ostensibly serve out his sentence in Iran. But given the fact that Mr. Assadi was, in fact, a member of the delegation from Iran in Belgium, I doubt that would ever happen. Well, as a result of that, I also found out, and this is the highlight for me, that I have been named as one of 61 Americans who have been sanctioned by the Iranian government for our support for a regime change in Iran. And I'm only number 20 on that list of 61, but there are 30 sitting or previous members of Congress, including Robert Torricelli, Bob Menendez, John Cornyn, Ted Cruz, Joni Ernst, Maggie Hassan, Roy Blunt, Cory Booker. They're just a whole number of dignitaries. So even though it's a low light and a little bit scary to be targeted by the Iranian government, especially when they're willing to place bombs and kill people, it's a highlight. And I consider it an honor to be in that company and to be thought of as somewhat of a threat to the Iranian regime. Congratulations. <laughs> and uh, yeah, of course, we do hope that you will be safe. Okay, Bill Galston. Well, first of all, Linda, congratulations. What a wonderful enemies list to be on. <laughs> <laughs> I now have enemies list envy. 
<laughs> sort of like during the Nixon administration. Didn't qualify for that either. My low light is much closer to home. The George Washington University Law School, where my wife taught for more than three decades, recently disclosed that Clarence Thomas has withdrawn from teaching, at least for this semester, after 11 years of doing so on a regular basis. And he withdrew pretty clearly because there was a massive student protest at GW against his continued presence, even as an adjunct on the GW faculty. I don't agree with Clarence Thomas about much of anything, but it does seem to me that the university is for the vetting of ideas that many, many people disagree with. This is sort of John Stuart Mill or, or John Milton 101. And I am flabbergasted, I have to say, by the extent to which this youngest generation simply doesn't believe in those principles, at least the ones who attend college. And I deeply regret this. And what I especially regret is the currency of this odious phrase that his ideas make me, quote, feel unsafe. If you want to feel safe intellectually, Stay home. Don't go to college. Uh, that's my advice to you. Couldn't agree more. And by the way, some people are doing things in this world that make them literally unsafe, like Linda Chavez, you know, being publicly out there against the Iranian regime. That's what being unsafe really means. The idea that somebody might say something that you find offensive is not endangering your welfare. Okay. Deep breath. <laughs> Okay. So my, I don't know whether you would call it a highlight or a low light. It's kind of amusing from one point of view. So I'm going to pay tribute to the uh, Republican National Committee this week. This week, they warned former President Trump. See, they're worried that he is going to declare his candidacy for president in the 2024 race before the midterms. And if he does that, they're scared that it will energize Democrats and be very bad for Republican candidates. And so in order to discourage him from doing this, they have said, if you declare your candidacy before the midterms, we will stop paying your legal bills. What? That's right. The Republican National Committee has been paying Donald Trump's legal bills, including having to do with legal cases brought against the Trump Organization in New York for tax evasion and other sorts of things. Yep. The RNC has been footing those bills. They've paid since 2021. They've shelled out almost $2 million to various law firms representing Donald Trump. Now, you may say, why are they doing that? Well, it isn't just the goodness of their hearts and it isn't just the cult. It is that they use Donald Trump's name and likeness all the time for their fundraising. That's what you hear constantly from the RNC. President Trump is counting on you to save America from the communist Democrats and you need to chip in 15 bucks. That's the sort of thing. And so they've made a deal. Trump has extracted from them that they'll pay his legal bills in exchange for being able to use his name. And uh, now they're both uncomfortable. And I say, great, I'm glad. All right. With that, I want to thank our guest, Nicholas Grossman, for returning to Beg to Differ. It was great to have you again. And I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper. Our sound engineer today is Joe Armstrong. And I want to thank all of our listeners and we will return next week as every week.